Charles Thomas Studd had everything going for him in this life. His family was wealthy, uh, he received the best education, he was schooled at Eton College and then Trinity College, Cambridge. He was a top cricketer. He represented England in 1882 in a test match against Australia. They lost, Australia won, and uh, the Ashes was born. In fact, Charles uh, Studd's, C.T. Studd's name is actually written on that Ashes urn. must be pretty small writing because the Ashes urn's only about that big. It fits a, a bale of a stump inside. Uh, he played five test matches, including a tour to Australia the following year, 1883. The same year he graduated from Cambridge. The world was his for the taking. University graduate, uh, test cricketer, success, fortune and fame beckoned. Uh, But in 1884 his brother George, a committed Christian, became seriously ill and as Charles spent time at his bedside he thought to himself, what's all the popularity in the world worth to George? What's it worth to possess all the riches in the world when a man comes to face eternity. It wasn't long after that that C.T. Studd uh, recommitted himself to Christ. Uh, When the next cricket season rolled around, he had a choice to make. Uh, He wrote, Formerly I had as much love for cricket as any man could have, but when the Lord Jesus came into my heart, I found that I had something infinitely better than cricket. My heart was no longer in the game. I wanted to win souls for the Lord. I knew that cricket would not last and honour would not last and nothing in the world would last but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. He had a choice to make between glory now or glory then. What matters more, this world, the world that we are simply tourists, visitors in and we're just passing through or does our true home matter more? Uh, eternity with God. It's not just a choice CT Studd faced, it's a choice we all face. Uh, We can work for the acceptance and success and approval and riches in this world or we can say no to those things and instead work for acceptance and success and approval and riches in God's kingdom uh, in the future. Now you might think you're never going to be a test cricketer or uh, someone who has to give up something like CT Studd but we make that choice in small ways a dozen different times a day. When we open our wallet, when we open our mouths and speak, when we choose whose approval we're going to work for and what priorities we're going to have in our life. We're choosing between glory now or glory then and it really is a choice between those two. You actually can't have both. James 4.4 says that love of this world is hatred towards God, James 4.4. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2.15. You can't have both. It's glory now or glory then. Which do you choose? Well, as Peter comes to the end of his letter, 1 Peter 5, he turns his attention to church leaders, to elders, And he says that they've got the same choice when it comes to how they look after God's sheep. They can chase after glory and fame and acclaim and honour now 
Or instead they can be motivated by the rewards and the glory that Jesus promises when he appears. Glory then. And it's important for church leaders because of what the rest of the church has to live through. The leaders are the ones who can help them stand firm through the suffering they're going through. You've got your Bibles open, just have a look at the end of chapter 4 and notice how it's talking about Christians in general. How should a Christian deal with suffering? Chapter 4 verse 19. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. That's the way the Christian is to live through life, making decisions to keep trusting God even though he's suffering. Uh, and, and straight away, church leaders are addressed. Uh, now, we tend not to make the connection because there's a big number five in between verse 19 and verse 1 of chapter 5. And it doesn't really help either that the NIV misses out a, a therefore that's actually in a lot, of, a lot of other translations and in the original. So, chapter 4 ends, those who suffer should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to, de- to, continue to do good. And then chapter 5 continues straight on, therefore... I appeal to the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's sufferings, be shepherds of God's flock. Do you see what the therefore is there for? God uses church leaders to help his people stand firm who are doing it tough, to protect the sheep as they're being attacked. The elders are the means by which the sufferers can keep committing themselves to God and keep continuing to do, God, uh, to do good. And so that's why Peter has some instructions for the elders, uh, for the sake of the sheep, for the sake of the people they're leading. So firstly, before Peter gets there though, he describes himself. Have a look at how he begins. He says, a fellow elder. That's Peter. Now, he too is someone who bears the responsibility for looking after a flock. He knows the pressures, he knows the temptations, he knows the struggles and he's a witness of Christ's sufferings. Now why mention that? There's lots of things Peter could say about himself but why mention a witness of Christ's sufferings? I reckon it's because he's seen the way Christ's sufferings worked out in Jesus' life. Those sufferings lay the platform, they set the pattern for the the followers of Jesus who follow him. It's a point he's made again and again through the letter. Christ's sufferings help us understand our sufferings, help us uh, help give a reason to our sufferings. Look there in chapter 4 verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, which means something like your sufferings flow out of being a follower of Jesus. Or back in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Steel yourself, resolve to, to, to survive through those sufferings that you endure. That's what Jesus did. Or back, chapter 2, a page earlier, chapter 2, verse 21. We read, It's commendable before God to suffer for doing good. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Peter's point is that suffering is the way God works out his plans for the Christian. 
How do we know that? Because that's the way he worked it for Jesus. They were just the first step on the path to victory for Jesus. His sufferings led to his victory. Suffering first, success second. Peter recognises the sufferings of Christ as well as the, the, the glory of Christ. He's a witness to Christ's sufferings but he's also looking forward to the glory that will be revealed. Jesus' life, his obedience was about choosing the glory to come rather than the comfort, the glory of his earthly existence. His father's praise rather than man's praise. And so that's what Peter wants his readers to be focusing in on. That's the pattern he wants to be reminding them of. As the leaders, as the flock, as the Christians go through suffering, uh, they're tempted to put comfort and riches first, uh, to put glory now ahead of glory then. And what they need to do is remember that Jesus faced that same choice before them. And he didn't settle for the easy option. He took the long view. He chose glory then rather than glory now. And so Peter wants us to do the same thing. Well, he set that pattern for Jesus' example in place. Uh, Now he moves on to the leaders themselves and uh, how they're to live. Verse 2. And he only really gives them one command. There are a whole lot of qualifiers, but there's one command. Now, uh, elders are called to do lots of things, but the Presbyterian church is sort of, that's what our name means, it means elder. And so we're sort of distinguished by the fact that we've got elders that, that, that look after the church. And our code book sort of sets out the things that we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to uh, organise things. And here's what it says elders are to do. Are you taking notes, Peter? Elders are to cooperate with the minister in the oversight and government of the congregation. Uh, They're to visit the aged and sick, to care for the young, to guide and encourage inquirers, to edify and comfort believers and generally promote the spiritual welfare of the congregation. That's a fairly substantial list, isn't it? Uh, But as Peter thinks about what he wants elders to do, he can sum it up in one command. Shepherd. Shepherd God's sheep. What does that mean to shepherd sheep? It means to make sure they're fed. Make sure you're feeding them God's word. Uh, It means to keep the sheep safe from danger. Fight off the lions and the wolves. Teach the sheep how to discern what's true and what's false. Rescue them when they wander off. Go out and bring in the strays. Be a shepherd. It's what the word pastor means. It just means shepherd. It's a job description that's been burned into Peter's brain ever since the night or or shortly after Jesus' resurrection. Do you remember John 21? Jesus pulls Peter aside and he says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I do. And Jesus commands him then, feed my sheep, take care of them. Three times he says it, shepherd the sheep. And Peter's been doing it ever since. That's what an elder is to do. And when you're looking at your flock, Peter goes on, don't forget whose sheep they are. They're not actually your flock, they're God's flock. You're just minding them, you're babysitting if you like, until the chief shepherd appears. Keep your eyes on the glory then when the chief shepherd appears. Don't get overly focused on the glory that you might 
see now. And there's that mindset will work itself out in practical ways as elders do their work, uh, in our attitudes and behaviours and motivations. So verse 2 talks about motivation. Uh, he says, shepherd willingly, not because you must. Be eager to serve. Uh, don't turn up at church grumbling, feeling sorry for yourself. God's not glorified by that. And can I just say the sheep can work it out pretty easily as well if you have the wrong attitude. Be motivated by pleasing God rather than man. Uh, that's what it means to work for glory then rather than now. Uh, and let God's riches motivate you, he says. Peter says, don't be greedy for money, but eager to serve. Then in verse 4 he talks about the crown of glory that awaits you. That's the sort of riches that's far more valuable to be working for. But it's not just our attitudes. Uh, it shows in our decisions, uh, in our behaviour as well, uh, in how the shepherd will treat the sheep. So he says, shepherd the sheep, not lording it over, verse 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Uh, There's a humility in that, isn't there? Leadership that is not lording it over the people that you rule uh, or that you're leading. When you realise that they're not actually your sheep, they're God's, when you realise that you're not actually the shepherd, you're an under-shepherd, it's Jesus who's the shepherd, when you realise those things, you realise they've only been entrusted to you. You've got them on loan, that you're just one small worker in God's huge field and that you're just following the example of Jesus, the servant king. You've come to serve those you lead, not to be served by them. You won't have them working for you, you'll be working for them. You'll be putting them first. You'll consider them before yourselves. If you're a leader, you'll be at the back of the queue rather than the front. And you're not just following Christ's example, you're actually setting an example for the flock, for the people you're leading as you do that. You'll be pointing them to Jesus by your actions as well as by your words. And you do it all with your eyes fixed on the glory to come. See verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory. They're the riches that we're to be working for. Uh, And it'll be worth it because that crown is so much better than the earthly riches you might get. But it's not just you, you're actually bringing all those sheep with you. You've kept them safe and strong and fed to that day when you can hand them back to the chief shepherd who you've been minding them for. Now, that's a word to all our elders and I hope you've all been listening uh, because... Uh, the stakes are pretty high, there's a lot depending on, uh, on it, on how we do our job. Uh, the rewards are huge, uh, but it's not just a word for elders. So I hope the rest of you have been listening as well. Uh, because firstly, it's, uh, it can help you know, these instructions can help you know what to expect from your elders. Uh, so you can be gently pointing them back to commands like this if you see us falling short. But it's also for the rest of you to, uh, you need to be listening so you can know the sorts of attitudes and behaviours that you should be imitating. As we lead you, you will know what it means to follow, what sorts of 
uh, ways you should be living yourself. Thirdly, you should be listening so that you can know what to look for in uh, potential elders. Uh, Look for people who live like that, who are shepherding the sheep like that, who have the attitudes like that. Uh, They're the ones that you want to be shepherds in the future. Hopefully we want to appoint more leaders, uh, more elders, so uh, keep your eyes open for the sorts of people who are living like that. Well, that's the elders. Uh, In verse 5, Peter turns his attention to the rest of the sheep, uh, to the young men, or it actually says to the youngers. You've got elders and then you've got youngers. Uh, And once again, his focus is, uh, is on the glory then, not just the glory now. It doesn't matter what your Christian journey looks like, it is to be about humility, says Peter. Humility is about being content whatever you're doing, even when no one recognises or rewards you. Uh, Live with that sort of humility, he says. Be comfortable with taking orders rather than giving orders. Be comfortable with not having your own way, with uh, with listening rather than speaking, uh, because you're not interested in glory now. Verse 5, he says, Everyone, clothe yourselves with humility. It's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? He could have just said be humble. But he says clothe yourselves with humility. Put it on like a singlet for every occasion. Whatever else you put on, wear humility underneath. Uh, You may be wearing a flashy suit because you're preaching to thousands or singing in a big concert or being congratulated for doing a great job. But make sure underneath the suit you're always wearing your humility singlet. That's what God wants from us. Why? Well, Peter quotes a proverb, be humble because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's just a general principle for his kingdom. God has woven humility into the very fabric of his kingdom. He loves the wallflower. He loves the you-first door opener. He loves the unseen backroom cleaner-upper and the early morning prayer and the meal cooker and the anonymous check writer. God loves the humble. No one else may notice, but you can be sure God does and he rewards that. He promises glory then for those who don't seek it now. So be humble. And in verse 6, when it comes to persecution and suffering, which will come, keep that same humble attitude uh, towards God. He says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Uh, Don't fight against it. Don't demand an answer or a reprieve or a change. Don't seek revenge. Don't insist that you know better. Don't grumble, but instead be humble. Learn what it means to be content, whatever your circumstances, as Paul says in Philippians 4. That's what faith looks like. Faith works itself out in being humble under God's mighty hand. Uh, Seek his glory then because God promises to lift you up in due time. That's his timing, of course. It's not your timing. It might be at Christ's return. It might be earlier, but he will lift you up. Injustices will be restored and crimes punished. And in verse 7, I love what he says to warriors. Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him 
cast all your anxiety, big and small, short term, long term, hand it all over to him. Unburden yourself, take off that big heavy backpack and just put it onto God's shoulders. They're broad and he can carry it. If you're lying awake at night worrying, then stop, pray about it, hand it over and leave it there. Leave it with him. And then sleep the sleep of the unburdened. And uh, the verse finishes, verse 7 finishes in an unexpected but wonderful way. Uh, Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him because he answers prayer. No. Uh, Cast all your anxiety on him because he'll fix it or he's in control. Well, it doesn't say that either. We may expect things like that, but here's how he finishes. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He cares. He's the gentle, compassionate father who's bringing you through this difficult situation, who's correcting you for his glory, for your good. He's powerful enough to finish it in an instant, but he's not. His timing's perfect. Often we'll never find out why. But ultimately the great comfort comes simply from knowing that he cares. He cares. And when you've laid your burdens at God's feet, at the caring, powerful Father, verse 8, Peter says, you play your part as well. You don't just give up and do nothing. Verse 8, he says, be sober and on guard. Don't get complacent because the devil's real. And he's active and he's an enemy. He's like a roaring lion. It's continuing this uh, imagery of sheep and, and animals, isn't it, that The sheep have shepherds to keep them safe but Satan, the lion, is prowling around looking for a weak sheep or a hole in the fence or shepherds who are sleepy and not watching. And in verse 9, if Satan tries to use persecution to devour the sheep, uh, then we're to resist him by standing firm in your faith. That means trusting God in the midst of the persecution. His hand is pressing on you but he does care and he will bring relief in due time. Uh, Trusting him means trusting those promises and not giving the devil a foothold. And as an added comfort, Peter says you're not the only one going through that. It's a funny sort of comfort, isn't it? You know, uh, know, I'm in hospital, I'm having an operation but at least I'm not as bad as that guy in the bed next to me. There's some sort of perverse comfort in that. Uh, But Peter says, you're not the only one who's going through this. Your particular battlefield is just one part of a bigger picture, of a a total war. There is an overall plan. God is the general who can see the whole battlefield and he's working out a big strategy. And you may not see your part uh, in the big strategy, but there is a big strategy. Uh, Can you see what it is in verse 10? Here's the battle plan. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. Who is he who's doing all of that? Well, he's the God of all grace. You're being persecuted and suffering, But remember he's the God of all grace. He's shown you grace in the past. He saved you. 
He's giving you grace in the present. You're enduring through the persecution. And he's promising you grace at the end when he brings you home. He's the God of all grace. He's the God who's called you. You didn't just stumble by accident into this present situation that's difficult. You're exactly where God wants you. He's called you. He's not just calling you to suffering though. That's just temporary. He's called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That's the big picture. It's far better than some glory you might receive now. And it's ours because we're joined to him, to to Christ, the one who's trodden that same downward and upward path before us. And in the meantime, as we wait for that final day, God himself promises to equip us so that we can see it through to the end. You see, he will make us strong, firm and steadfast. He won't just hold out the promise like a carrot in front of a donkey and expect us to make it there. He promises it to us and then makes us strong, firm and steadfast to, to, to get to the end. Our strength doesn't come from, him, from ourselves but from him who's called us. He gives us the promises but then he also sends us to his armoury and personally loads us with the weapons that we'll need. And so in verse 11, he's the one who deserves all the power for all eternity. That's the big picture. That's the final goal we need to keep in mind as we live as strangers, as aliens, as tourists here in this world. Fix our eyes on that final battle plan. Concentrate on glory then rather than pursuing some sort of glory now. It was the sort of perspective C.T. Studd had for his whole life. He turned his back on cricketing success. He gave away a substantial, um, a substantial inheritance. And then he served 10 years in China as a missionary with Hudson Taylor. He was one of the Cambridge Seven. You know, I think he's back left, top left. Uh, so that's C.T. Studd. Ten years in China and then six more in India. One of the things he wrote was, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop uh, within a yard of hell. Uh, Finally in 1910, uh, 52 years old, at an age when uh, most of us feel like starting to slow down a little, he decided to head to Africa, to the Sudan, and he founded the Heart of Africa Mission. Uh, He died 21 years later and was buried in the Belgian Congo. No money, almost no possessions. That might be about all the possessions he had in that photo. Uh, Very little glory on earth. If you like, his name was written on that ashes statue, you know, the, the, the urn, maybe this big. But imagine how large his name was written in heaven. Now, perhaps his best-known quote is this one that sums him up. Well, the faith choice that comes from seeking glory then rather than glory now. If Jesus Christ is God and he died for me, then no sacrifice is too much to make for him. That's what enabled him to, to give it all up for the sake of the glory then. May we live this week even just a little with that sort of attitude.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your your word and your promises. Uh, Help us uh, to keep our eyes fixed on you and on your word and to trust you that we might all make it to the end. Amen.